welcome to the fourth installment of our Star Trek podcast, Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. We're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we'll provide comments on, the ep- on episode four, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. <laughs> now the story um, uh, deals with Corvin II, which is this dilithium mining colony under attack by the Klingons. Capture of the colony will result in the death of the miners and their families, and the capture of the source of 40% of the material used to fuel Starfleet ships. Obviously, this would be a devastating blow to the war effort. We learn that no other ship but the Discovery can possibly get to the Corvin in time to prevent a Klingon massacre and also their victory. Yeah, the admiral who talks to Lorca says that the, the second closest ship is 84 hours away, and they've got basically, at that time, six hours before their shields are going to go down, and they'll be destroyed by the Klingons and, and invaded. So what they had to rely on is the discovery spore-based propulsion technology that has yet to be perfected as a reliable means of travel. Yeah, yeah. Well, they haven't been able to do long jumps like this, but the Glen was able to do that, and they still haven't figured out how the Glen was able to, to solve that problem. Except that it still isn't reliable because the Glen was destroyed because they, were, they didn't have a way... That's a technicality. <laughs> well, it was a, that's a pretty big technicality. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so the primary focus of the story uh, is to demonstrate Captain Gabriel Lorca's command style, um, as well as um, his relationship to the crew. Yeah, yeah. Unlike uh, other Star Trek series, Lorca is a stranger to most of his crew. In fact, he's, he didn't choose the crew. It's a science ship. He doesn't appear to be the kind of guy that would be in charge of a science. He doesn't have a... He doesn't. As, at this point, we don't know if he has a science background at all. Um, and, and it really is unclear as to whether he's somebody who would want to be around with these people. In fact, his whole uh, style of of command is atypical to what we've seen in any other Star Trek show. So in one of the early scenes, Lorca runs the simulation with the bridge crew to train them in tactical fighting to prepare them for battle. So this is the issue. The issue is that if the spore propulsion technology works, they would have an element of surprise with the aggressor. However, they're going to be alone. They're not going to have any kind of backup. Right. There's not going to be any other starships that are going to just pop in and be able to defend them on their flank. They're going to be the lone ship in any battle that that they're in that they enter in using the spore drive. And so that means that, yes, they will have the element of surprise, but they are also going to have to be dependent upon themselves and themselves alone. So there's a deep resentment in the crew about this change in purpose. 
uh, uh, they feel that, look, you know, this is a signed ship, and now we have been really retrofitted for military purposes. And this is really uh, most exemplified by the scene in which you have science officer Paul Stamets, who openly defies the captain and threatens to leave. You know, it's like almost like he's a child. I'm going to leave and take my marbles with me. He says, I'm going to take this sport-based technology uh, that he and this colleague uh, invented. However, the captain tells them, look, you can leave, but that technology belongs to the Federation. And, and that actual, that exchange really was, um, it was unrealistic in, in the sense that, in fact, that's one of the things that I think I have, to, I have some difference with in regards to the way this show went down because he doesn't have control of the technology. He's funded by Starfleet. He's on a Starfleet sh ship. He's being test. He's testing it under the auspices of the Starfleet. And at that time, the Federation is in a war. The reason why they want this technology to work is because they are currently in waging a war that they want to end and end in their favor as quickly as possible. And so that 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 temper tantrum that he throws is re it was was kind of immature and at the same time also completely out of the nature of what should be expected. Well, I agree with you that um, it is something that, you know, he would know good and well that that technology did not belong to him. Right, he just right. can't say, well, you can't use my technology anymore, you know, that, that I invented because he knows, you know, just like corporations, if you work for a corporation today, right. it's not your invention it is. It belongs to that corporation that you're at. So I do agree with that. But I think we've seen with the episode that we had previously that it is in um, uh, uh, Lieutenant Stamets' nature to to be uh, proprietary. Uh, right. with things, right. even though realistically he should know better that look, it's not really yours. Yeah. Well, he acts. He acts as if you know. It's well. Let's let's put it this way. So, the Wrath of Khan mm -hmm. with the Genesis Project. Mm -hmm. Those are scientists who are working in tandem with Federation, but they're not Federation officials. Right. They hold no military and no uh, affiliation with them. They're mm -hmm. not. They are not underneath that chain of command. Mm -hmm. And so when. The when um, Chekhov gets on and calls them and says that they're coming to pick up the the, the Genesis device, that's out of the agreement that they had, and so I understand that this is a different thing. Stamets is a lieutenant right. on this ship, that's right, and so he really doesn't have that kind of level of flexibility, right? And so, so when the captain sees this is not working, like he just can't appeal to the people. You know, based on look, it's your duty to uh, to take chances so that we can uh, go and save the uh, Corvin too. Uh, what he uh, realizes that he has to find another way to motivate them, and so what he does is he plays an audio of the distress call coming from Corvin too. And what this does is places a human face on the tragedy that's unfolding. So this audio serves to give the crew, including Stamets, the desire to make the attitude adjustments necessary to go forward with the mission despite the risks. But it's also one other thing. The, that scene and the simulation that they were doing prior to that, 
um, also shows something about Lorca and his command style. He has no problem with putting his crew under high levels of stress. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he, 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 that's actually his go-to. That he believes that if you're in a stressful circumstance, that you understand the gravity of what you're doing, that you will perform better. And, and that's, again, atypical to the style of performance we've seen from other captains on other starships. Starship shows, as as well as even with the other captains we've seen in this show thus far. All right, and so and then there were other characteristics about Lorca that we learned in this episode. So and this and this time we learned it through the lens of other crew members. So there is this other scene where security officer Landry is ordered to oversee the work of Michael Burnham. Now, Michael has been given the initially thankless task of finding a way to weaponize the deathly creature uh, found on the ill-fated Glen ship. Landry tells us, Lorca is not interested in what you are. He is interested in what you can do. Which I think is probably the most honest statement that's ever been said about Lorca. That's exactly who he is. He, he is only interested in the function that you can have in any task or circumstance that he's dealing with. He's not, this, this is not a man who's going to make friends with you. You're not going to have an established long-term relationship and think fondly of your time serving alongside Captain Lorca. <laughs> That's right. So um, we do have to uh, say something about Landry here because she does not survive this episode. Yeah. You know, what happens is that she misinterprets or disregards Lorca's instructions to her and decides Michael is not focused on the right aspects of the creature to get the, the desired results. She renames it the creature the Ripper and lets it out of its containment pen with the intentions of dismembering its claws for Michael's study. Michael's warnings go unheeded and Landry pays the ultimate price for her stupidity uh, with her death. But that exactly right there. Her action here is she's trying to um, get a result. And she's been told to go down there and make sure that uh, Michael doesn't go off on her inquisitive uh, tangents, look, trying to examine this, um, the terror grade, I think they call it, mm-hmm. um, for some other reason, some other purposes. She, she supposedly is there to make sure she stays on task of being able to weaponize its claws, its skin, what the things that made it, made it impervious to a phaser on stun, I mean, on kill, mm-hmm. and also made it able to cut through the interior of a starship as well as the way it mauled those Klingons that they found all strewn all over the Glen. So it's so so she she does something that is highly risky, extremely mm-hmm. risky. She puts both herself and Michael in in, in, in danger, in danger yes. huge danger, um, with and with nothing more to protect her but. This this phase cannon that she's got, and the whole thing is the phase rifle. We've already seen that it's been ineffective. Right, right. So, so what was she expecting? What, what was she? Expecting? What was she expecting? The result was going to be that was going to be any different than what she had seen beforehand. Exactly, exactly. You know? 
So the other thing is that um, we want to remind you know our audience that the only crew person on the ship chosen by Lorca is Michael. Right, right. Thus, to the crew, Lorca is also an outsider. Well, there there was a lot of of that playing in the episode. That's that's also an aspect of the the Klingon storyline that's playing in tangent with this one, talking about the sense of being an outsider. Um, with um, uh, Vox, who's also called Son of None by, uh, by uh, Cole. And so we're going to get a little bit deeper right, into right. talking about the Klingons in a moment. But um, I, we also want to remind you that, in addition, Lorca chose Michael because she had qualities he wanted to appropriate for the mission to fight the war against the Klingons. We later learn Michael is not above using tactics associated with Lorca to achieve her objectives. So um, why don't you talk about that scene with Saru? <laughs> Which is interesting. You know, that's a, it's a bit of a, a jerk move on her part. So earlier on, when we see Michael leaving her quarters and going to the bridge, she ends up on the turbo lift with Saru and immediately his threat ganglia um, expose themselves around her and she can see that he's uncomfortable with her. He thinks that, you know, and that supposedly is indicate that, that there is some danger connected or he perceives danger connected with Michael. And although she talks him out of it thinking that that's the case, he nevertheless is um, uncomfortable with it. So, he, so she calls him down to the lab where she's working with the Terragrade and this is after, mind you, after Landry's been mauled and killed by the doggone thing. And so she, she calls him down and his threat ganglia don't come out. And it's her testing a theory that it's not a monster. The Terragrade is not a monster. In fact, actually, it's a creature that is based on a microbe that exists in seas on earth mm -hmm. so the question is the, the question becomes like where did it come from how did it become how did it become mutated into this large thing but the, the thing she comes away with is a knowledge that it's not a threat it's not something that's not a monster which has been the perception of it up to this point yeah, so so after she finds out that he's that this that the creature's not a monster, right. it, it then she's able to think, well, how was it used in the Glen? Right, why exactly. why did they retain it right. on there? And so what we find out is that the creature has this organic link to the spores. In fact, it responded to them when they when when the um, drive was engaged prior to the jump. She it began to respond at that point. That's right. So. So what they do is they appropriate the, the creature to use as part of the navigation system to ensure that it's going to arrive at the cor correct coordinates. In fact, that's actually the missing part. They were looking for um, some device, some supercomputer that was connected to the devices that they were able to salvage from the Glen, and they couldn't find that. And the turns out that the supercomputer is actually this terragrade that they have, this this beast that they've been looking at, they've been trying to find, weaponize, you know. Exactly. So they're able to link the creature to their propulsion system, right. and they're able to arrive at the Corvin II in time to save the colonists and the dilithium mining planet from falling into Klingon hands. But there is a cost to that. You know, although the discovery is able to uh, meet its mission, it does so at the subjugation of a creature 
who is given no other option but to participate in this manner. Yeah. And I think that that's the point that Michael focuses on because as you can see, it is going through some discomfort when it's being engaged with the the spore drive, when it's being used for the nav- for its navigational purposes. Um and I, and and Michael seems to be the only one that seems to be aware of the unethical boundaries of enslaving what appears to be a sentient being because earlier on when she she connects with it after she puts herself in danger and brings one of the spore canisters she then sees that it's not violent that what it does is actually comes up and licks her like like a dog would so it does have it it, it has sentience mm-hmm. and it's non-threatening so the two things that that she you would assume you would cause you to be more ethical towards your treatment of it are the very things that are disregarded in regards to how they use they use it as a functionary tool to get their their get their objective which is to get to Corvin too. That's right. And so now we want to talk a little bit about the subplots of the episode. And so one of the subplots has to do with the Klingons. And here uh, the episode returns to Takuma's disabled ship. And the crew is now led by Vok, who you will recall Vok was the one that was chosen by Takuma. He's the albino. He's the albino. So despite his skin color and also his lack of status in the Klingon uh, world, he is supposedly Takuma's torchbearer. And we find out that the other Klingon houses have left this crew of this ship to starve to death. So now it's six months later since that battle and only, and only one Klingon representative returns, and this is Call, um, who we find out is only interested in obtaining the ship's cloaking device. Okay, but, but before that, we should highlight the fact that, so it's six months later, they've, they've run out of rations. They've gone into cannibalism, both in um, in scavenging the other ships that have been in the the debris field around where they are at the the uh, binary stars, but also in regards to what they've been able to eat there, because we find out through the conversation between Vok and Laurel that they ate. Captain Giorgio. Right. So for all of you who were holding out hope that Giorgio somehow survived, we can tell you that, with all surety which I think is, that that, um, that she's dead. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's uh, just, it, it, well not only is sad to know that she really is dead, yeah. but that they ate her, that yeah, she I was eaten. I know that, so, that, that's the that's the that's the cruelest thing. So so she's not coming back. She's if she's coming back, she's coming back in flashbacks, right. not or uh, in holograms. Or so. holograms of some kind. Right. So uh Laurel was one uh who's a female, was one of Takuma's most ardent followers, and she pledges her loyalty to Vogue and convinces him that what they need to do to survive is to go harvest the lithium processor from the Shinzu to repair their ship. Right, so it has a propulsion unit, so it actually can leave here and get somewhere where they might be able to find um, resources they can get into the battle and they can they can be part of the war that's that's occurring around them. 
So they do um, successfully reclaim the device, but when they return, they find out that Call has used a food to persuade Takuma's crew to align with him. Laurel feigns loyalty to Call to prevent him from immediately killing Vok. You know, but of course, you have to think about those Austin Powers films where you say, yeah, why don't you just go ahead and kill him? You know, why would you say... Oh, you know, abandon him on this relic of a ship. Right. That would be better than just taking his life right now. Life, but okay, yeah. we're just going to get past that. That's because so, he's got more to do in the story going forward. Right, right. So, Vok is banished, uh, as Gary just said, to the Shenzhou. Uh, and then we later learned that Laurel. Um, who is really resourceful. This is a re- very resourceful <laughs> woman. She's able to steal a spacecraft. Yeah, she, spe- she steals a, uh, a bird of prey. And she offers uh, Valk the, an opportunity to reclaim his fa- place as Takuma's uh, successor in order to bring a united Klingon empire to victory. So she says, look, we're going to go to the house of my of the matriarchs Mokai. of her matriarchs yeah, the Mo- house of mokai and they're known as deceivers there's deceivers and weavers of lies and weavers of lies which, which she shows she has great deal of ability in right and she says look they'll be able to teach you a lot of things well she he asked he he, he asked a very uh, interesting question he says what will he have to sacrifice and she says everything so we can't wait to see what every Thing actually entails well i think what i think is but again the, the whole thing behind that storyline is vok is being presented to us as someone who is an outsider who is ostracized by klingon society in similar fashion that michael is going through that's fact, right and so they are playing parallels in this story he's a foil for michael in a lot of the ways that the story is playing out. And a foil is a character who resonates on a similar fashion with a lead character in yeah. the story. And, and I cannot, for one, wait for Michael to find out that they ate the yeah, captain. Well, you know? I, 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 uh, I know. I had to play that back because I, I, first off, when they said it, I wasn't really sure that right. that was what they said. Yeah. And I had read it. And I said, I, did I read that wrong? I had to go back and read it again because... Oh, man. That's disgusting. So then Michael receives... uh, Another important moment is that Michael receives Captain Giorgio's last will and testament. And she's really reluctant to take it. uh, I mean, obviously out of guilt and so forth. But but she's finally convinced by uh, Cadet Tilly to do so. What do you think about Tilly? Because she's an interesting... As in con- she's an interesting aspect of the of the crew in the show. Yeah, I mean, I think in this episode in particular, they didn't really give her a lot to do. No, they didn't. You no, know, didn't. Um, she's really the messenger. Uh, but um, but I think I like her more than you do. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I I, I imagine that over time, I can be. I she can grow on me. Right. Just she's very bright and cheery and unburdened by the ravages of life mm-hmm. <laughs> in comparison to absolutely everybody else on that ship. Yeah. Everybody else on that ship has gone through some stuff right. and it's reflected in how they behave. Right. And then the whole tenor, the atmosphere that um, Lorca creates really doesn't 
allow for a bright and cheery young woman. To That's be, right. <laughs> so so she prosper. is in stark You're right in stark contrast to everybody else. Yeah yeah yeah. But let's get back to this uh, last will and testament. Okay. Okay. So Michael opens it, and this holographic image of the captain appears, and she tells Michael, "You are curious and an explorer." You know, she says, keep your mind and heart open. And then probably the most important thing she says is take good care. But more importantly, take good care of those in your care. And that's what I think is really interesting because, again, Giorgio coming back at this moment, specifically in this episode, shows the contrast between herself and the way she led her whole um, leadership approach and that of Lorca's. She was a nurturer, and it wasn't just a nurturer in a way that, oh, you know, she's a motherly person. She also could present, she put people in positions where they had to question their own preconceived notions about things. And she did that in part to Michael when they, when in, in the first couple of episodes. But at the same time, she is concerned about the well being the mental well-being of these people. That is not a concern of Lorca's. Lorca does not give one whit about the mental the mental well-being of his... In fact, the emotional state of his of his crew is one of... Everybody ought to... If everybody had threat, threat ganglia, everybody would be... You know, those ganglia would be hanging out of the back of their heads because it's there's constant tension on that ship. Yes, in yes. contrast to the way people appeared... On the Shinzu, because people made jokes, they 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 played with how they talked to one another. There was some, you know, some quick banter, that, you know, on occasion. And uh, Giorgio herself was willing to she she made she made um, jokes at the, not at the expense of anybody, but because she liked the levity of circumstances. And Lorca is not that's not who he is. That's right. And so, um, you know, so definitely Giorgio follows more in the tradition of Captain Kurt. Right. And that she's willing uh, to sacrifice her life to achieve uh, whatever the desired goal is, if if it means saving the crew and the ship. Right, right, right. So the other thing is that um, Giorgio leaves Michael her prized possession, a telescope, which has been in her family for centuries. So the telescope is both literal and figurative in this case. Um, the telescope, obviously, is an optical instrument which brings things nearer to you. But in Michael's case, it's a reminder that she should be willing to bring others closer to her, people closer to her. Uh, as Giorgio has demonstrated with her treatment with Michael, who she said she considered her to be like a daughter. Yes, she did. Yeah. And uh, again... That's not something that's going to hear coming out of Lorca's mouth. Not at all. No. Not at all. But, 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 but the other thing about that that I, I really like is the, is the fact that she, it reinforces the, the, the telescope. It reinforces the concept of Michael being an explorer, Michael, being, Michael having a natural curiosity that is one of somebody who seeks out you know, information, seeks out, you know, new life and, you know. And also seeks the truth. Yes, you she know, seeks the truth. There's not these quick assumptions that she makes. Right. Uh, you know, she now obviously, you know, if she only has a moment, then, you know, she um, makes assumptions on uh, within that context. Right. But that's not the way that she likes to proceed. No, she know? doesn't. She likes to test theories 
in a in, a, in an environment where the the threat level is low, right. as opposed to in the middle of a major conflict where you're well, there's a lot of stress right, that, right, that exactly. may color how you exactly. view a certain situation. again again contrary to um, Lorca, right? Who the other thing was when um, the hologram of the uh, of the admiral contacted him and gave him the mission to go out and find and and serve Corvin Corvin too. He's eating, right? And he doesn't stop eating, right? While he's com- communicating with her, that's right. And that, to me, is a little disrespectful if you're talking about how you behave. I mean, a, that's not a Picard move. No, that's no. not a that. No. N- n- in fact, none of the none of the captains of any of the ships, or even Deep Space Nine. That's just not the way you behave to somebody who's your superior. So that's why we're interested in his backstory. Yeah. To, yeah. to find out, you know, what really motivates him. I mean, he's obviously a somebody who, you know, does doesn't um, respect authority. You know, he's gonna do things his way, but obviously. He's won the trust of those uh, uh, of his superiors. Well, I wouldn't put it that way. I think authority for him is is his authority in any circumstance. He's not into other people lauding their authority or their ability to constrain him. That's the difference. I ex- I accept that. Yeah, yeah, because I, I, I think I that's the difference. So he's the one who makes decisions, isn't in charge, um, and not not someone else who tells him. Tells him what to do, and, and that's definitely the undertone to the whole conversation with the admiral. I mean, she co- comes in part to give him this mission, but the other thing is to question why has he put a known mutineer as part of his crew? Right. So, um, so with that, you know, I think uh, that's it for this episode. But we would like to know what you think. And uh, so, for instance, what other aspects of Lorca's character were revealed by this episode? What do you think Laurel meant when she told Vok he will need to sacrifice everything to achieve victory for the Klingon people? And going forward, how do you think Captain Giorgio's last will and testament will affect Michael? Okay. So why don't you respond to these questions by um, giving us your thoughts on the Facebook page, um, we have an email address you could send in your comments. That's Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. Star Trek AOD as in dog at gmail.com. Or you, like I said, you can go to the Facebook page, which is Star Trek Age of Discovery, and just leave comments on underneath this this episode as to what you think. Uh, you think about this episode and thought about some of the aspects or anything else that you might come to mind. So like us, we hope you're looking forward to episode five. Yeah, I think I think you should be because this was a good one and I think it's only going to get better going forward. So until then, live long and prosper. Live long and prosper.